Amen. Good afternoon, friends. Great to be with you all this afternoon. It's hot, isn't it? I'm speaking on the question of suffering this afternoon. I feel like I could just spend 30 minutes talking about how hot it is outside. But it's nice to be in the building with you all. I am... I'm the pastor here at New Life Brisbane. My name's Alex. If you haven't met me yet, or if I haven't taken the trouble to meet you, come say good day after the service. Um, would love to get to know you, give you a COVID-safe handshake, and hear a bit of your story. That'd be really awesome. We're kicking up a new series today, and the title of the series is Crucial Conversations. Uh, I have it in my mind that we did this last year, before my time here as pastor in Brisbane, and the inspiration for this series is sort of born out of the cultural moment that unfolds as we live it. Uh, We live in a fast-paced world, and in a fast-paced world, there's questions that are being dredged up all the time about life, meaning, faith, purpose, morality, destiny, all these things that are big, universal questions that hit the life of every individual, and they raise crucial conversations. And if you track through the life and the ministry of Jesus, the guy under whom we apprentice, the Lord, Savior, and King that we follow as Christians, if you track through his life, you'll see that he was not afraid of crucial conversations. He didn't shy from them. He didn't run away from them. He lent in. And the question we're trying to address in this larger series as we knuckle down into smaller questions is is this. How do we take the ancient way of Jesus and think wisely and helpfully and fruitfully about questions that come up in our cultural moment. So today I'm talking about suffering. And I thought I might open with an illustration. The illustration goes a little bit like this. It's actually a true story. It's from 2015. In 2015, uh, there was a Irish talk show called The Meaning of Life. And the atheist, Stephen Fry, who doesn't believe in God, British guy, and British people have this tendency of sounding smart no matter what they say. And he was asked this question, you know, you're, you're not a Christian, you're an atheist, you don't believe God's real, you don't believe in any sort of spiritual spirituality. If you die and you find out that God is real, what would you say? And he said this. He said, I'd say bone cancer in children. What's that about? How dare you create a world? How dare you create a world to which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? These were his words. Welcome to church. (laughs) But he's picking up on something, something you might not articulate with the nice British accent or with the same kind of, you know, beautiful articulation, but he's picking up on the question that has plagued every human who's got an ounce of a reflective process in their life. And that question is this, that if God is real and if God is good, why does suffering exist? Now, in my old role, I used to work as an itinerant preacher, worked for a a ministry that sort of prided itself on addressing cultural questions in the public arena. And I would travel and I would address this question all the time. And I realized something as I addressed this question, you know, amongst a myriad of different demographics and that kind of thing, You can actually ask this question in one of two ways. The first way that people ask this question is from this sort of like detached and disinterested, armchair leaning back, intellectual snobbery kind of way, where you're not really interested in the question, you're just using the question as a way to lob a grenade at the Christian faith that you think you might have debunked. 
That's one way to ask the question. It's cold, it's clinical, you think you're smarter than the person that you're talking to. The other way to ask the question is from this deep gut level sense. And the reason that there's two ways to ask the question is because one's the intellectual way, you typically ask it on the other side of doing an undergraduate in philosophy, and the other is the way of asking when you've just been given a diagnosis, or you've just gotten a call from a loved one, or you've sat for long enough to think deep enough about the brutality of the world, and you've tried to ma match that onto the character of God that we see in the scriptures revealed in Jesus, and you say, these don't add up. If God's all-loving and all-powerful, why is there suffering? Before I answer that question, and just to tell you how I'll do it, I want to address the intellectual stuff, because it's really important, but I want you to think of it as like sort of, you know, homework. We'll get through it, housekeeping, I should say. We'll get through it. And then I want to talk more to the, the personal question. But before I do it, because we'll get into the scriptures at the very end, before I do it, I, I just thought I'd read from a passage that will come up at the very end of this service, and it's Romans 12, verse 15. I've got it quoted on the PowerPoint at the very end of the talk, and I just thought I might read it up front, just so you sort of set your sights towards where we're going. And Paul just says this. He says, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn, and rejoice with those who rejoice. So why don't I pray, and we'll jump into these two ways of asking the question. Father God, thank you so much that as we consider this question, we're not doing so as disinterested observers, but Lord, we beg to hear from you this evening. God, I don't want to just say what I think is true. I want to invite people to hear what I think is good and life-giving. And so, Holy Spirit, come. Would you minister to each one of us? Minister to me as I speak these words, Lord, and would we get a glimpse of the good, good Father that you are, and that you're inviting us to experience more and more and more. So Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, the intellectual question. If you trace it back in history enough, the intellectual question of suffering, it actually wasn't first posed to Christians. It was first posed to the Greeks because they had a pantheon of gods. And it was posed by a guy named Epicurus. Epicurus, he put this argument against the Greeks, and it went something like this. You'll see it on the PowerPoint behind me. He said, if God is all-powerful, but not willing to prevent evil, then he's not really all-loving. That seems to logically follow. If he's willing, but not able, then he's not really all-powerful. If he is able and willing, well, then why is there evil and suffering? Is he neither able nor willing? then why would you call him God? It's a powerful argument. It's powerful because it appeals to the one thing that each of us here have experienced to be true. What's that? That suffering is real. It's the most fundamental experience of life. All the great religious traditions have agreed on this. And anyone who's got a deep sense of what this life is about will know that suffering is real. It's the most fundamental human experience. And to anyone with an ounce of reflective process in their life. This hits home. You follow the argument where it leads, and it wants you to conclude that God mustn't be real, or at least not who he says he is. But here's the problem. The problem is that if suffering causes you to turn away from belief in God, the question each of us need to ask ourselves is this. To what have we turned instead? 
See, because each of us experience suffering in a very interesting way. When we experience suffering, there's a sort of heart cry that just gets birthed from the depths of us. And what's that heart cry? It's the heart cry for justice. It's this sense that suffering is wrong, that suffering's not just an accident or an illusion or meaningless, but it's actually fundamentally an injustice. And the question is, what worldview makes sense of that heart cry? What framework for reality actually gives you a lens through which to say suffering is indeed bad? Think about atheism for a moment. Atheism says that this world came from nothing, is here for no divine purpose, and will ultimately end up in some kind of death. Heat death, I think, is the going theory. While I was in the UK, my professor pointed this out to me, and he said, on that score, if this world is meaningless, then suffering is just an illusion. It's not actually real. You can't actually say it's an injustice. And I met, um, there's a famous atheist. He, no one really talks about him anymore, just because his writings, I guess they're a bit out of fashion, but his name's Richard Dawkins. And when I was in the UK, I was shopping at Sainsbury's with my housemate, Alonzo. And we walked in, and there was Richard Dawkins buying his groceries, and he's like an older man now. And I said hi, and it was socially awkward, but it was a nice encounter. And he wrote this book a few years ago called The River Out of Eden. And he so honestly sort of talks about how suffering means nothing on an atheistic worldview, which this is his claim as an atheist. And he said it like this. He said, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA just is and we dance to its music. What's his point? His point is that there's nothing evil about suffering. It's just natural on an atheistic worldview. There's no, if there's no scale of justice or injustice outside of nature, then there's no meaningful way by which to say that suffering is actually an injustice or wrong. And if there's no way to say that suffering is wrong, then the argument against God collapses. Do you see that? C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, wrote a book called Mere Christianity, and he put it like this when he discovered this, when he came to faith. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of saying that it was unjust, but that would have just suggested that it was like a, a fancy of my own. But if I did that, my argument against God collapsed too. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. What's the point? In a roundabout way, suffering's not evidence against God. It actually might be evidence for him. Why? Because the injustice we feel in the face of suffering, it demands a scale of justice which the Christian worldview gives. Suffering may not be evidence against God, it might just be evidence for God. The Christian story makes sense of the fact that suffering is wrong. See, the Christian story, it just claims that God made this world good, beautiful, harmony, shalom. You might have heard the phrase Garden of Eden before. Eden is just a Hebrew word for delight. But that humanity rebelled their vocation. They rejected the God who made them for himself. And 
Creation and ourselves were cut off from God, exiled, east of Eden, to use the words of one novel writer, John Steinbeck. And the world after that moment has been forever broken, forever fractured, awaiting the day that God would make it new again. And so when we cry out for justice in the face of suffering, whether it's the news of a loved one being lost, whether it's ourselves getting a particular diagnosis, whether we look out across the world and see the fragility and the brokenness, here's what you're doing. You're actually echoing the heart cry of God. You're borrowing from the scale of justice that itself finds its home in the Christian story. Now, why do I make this point? I make this point because if you're here today and suffering is either something that's derailed your faith or it stopped you from exploring it in the first place, just know this, it doesn't need to be. There's a whole host of wonderful resources that address the intellectual question of suffering. I've given just one of them. I found them deeply helpful in my own life. They're not exhaustive, I'll never claim that, but they're helpful. And there is a rationality, and there is a reasonableness, and there's a trustworthiness to the Christian story. And so it doesn't need to be an excuse for you, no matter what your background or your story. That's the intellectual question. But what about the personal one? One of the privileges I have as pastor of this church is, and I've been here for three months, but is journeying alongside people in this community through the real suffering that they're going through. That's sort of started to happen more recently. I remember when I first started, I had a, a council meeting with our elders, and the first thing they asked me was like, hey, what are the pastoral concerns in the church? This is my first month. And I was just like, I have no idea. Everyone's just said, welcome to church, Alex. Great to have you. Everyone's just really kind. Um, that's not the case anymore. People tell me their problems now, which is great. But people genuinely share what's going on in their lives and what's bad about it and how it hurts. And when people share their pain, Here's what those kind of conversations are not centered around. They're not centered around Epicurus and his argument against God. They're not centered around Richard Dawkins and his latest charge against the Christian faith. And to be honest, they're actually not centered around any one thing in particular. Why? Because when you're actually going through suffering, it's not detached and intellectual. It's not comfortable. It's not compartmentalized in a way that allows you to even talk about it with some kind of string of continuity. It's not like that. It's just pure, unhindered vulnerability. That's what it feels like when you've got the diagnosis. And the question of suffering, it's raised very differently at that level. It might not even be raised at all. You're too distracted. But if you do raise it, it goes something like this. Not why in general, but why me in particular? And a follow-up is, how do I get through it? This is actually a question, I think, that's posed in the Bible, not explicitly, but we kind of get it if we track through a particular story. And it comes up in the book of Job. Job's story, it's 42 chapters long. It's found in the Old Testament in a sort of string of literature called the wisdom literature. And we don't know if it's a true story or whether Job was a historical figure, and that's sort of like a debatable question. Feel free to talk to people who care about that stuff after the service. But it does get us to think, this book, it's actually a pretty confusing book. Because in the story, you've got this man. He's an honorable husband. He's a faithful father. And he fears God. He's like the best of the best. He's a righteous man. His name's Job. But all of a sudden, through the story, in the early chapters, everything he has is taken away from him. His kids are killed by a collapsing house. All of his wealth wrapped up in livestock, they're destroyed and stolen. His wife turns on him 
and tells him to curse God, the one person he thought he could be there, you know, to back him up in sort of this faith journey. She's just like, nah, peace out, Job, it's fine. And then his health turns bad. He catches a terrible skin disease. He ends up sitting in the house in which his kids died, scraping his skin with a pottery shard. Health, wealth, happiness, it's all gone. And what happens next? He asks this question. Why me? And how do I get through it? Why me? And how do I get through it? And it's from this story, I just want to pull out three little nuggets of, I hope, wisdom for the journey as you begin to ask and unpack these questions in your own life. I think from Job's story, we learn this first thing. One, that we should remember our finitude. Remember our finitude. What do I mean? Well, let's just first define finitude. Finitude's kind of just like a fancy way of talking about our limited nature as humans. And usually finitude is used as a word to describe humans in contrast to God. So you might have heard people talk about God. God is infinite. God is the greatest of all beings. Humans? I'm not so sure. Humans are finite. We're limited. We have expiry dates. We're flesh and blood. We decay. Humans are finite. And from Job's story, I think we remember uh, to, we, we're called to remember our finitude. Why do we need to remember this? Well, it's because when we're going through suffering, this is in my experience and in the experience of those that I've shared life with, it's, it's so easy to try and step into God's shoes and try and explain what we're going through. Like, in other words, to try and answer the why me question. It's actually really easy. That's the default. We start asking questions like this, what have I done? Did I sin and not repent? Is this, you know, for the charismatics, is this spiritual attack? Why me and why this? Am I being punished? And as Job's story unfolds, we're introduced to some friends which actually sort of do this kind of thinking on our behalf in the story. Uh, his friends, they try and answer these questions for Job. So just picture this. Job, he's this righteous man. He's lost all his stuff. His friends come along and they start saying, start trying to articulate answers to Job's questions. And the two going answers are this. One of them says, Job, you've probably sinned and God's punishing you for it. You know? Everything's nice and neat, nice and wrapped up. Job, you've probably sinned and God's punishing you for it. The other major answer that they give is that, no, Job, you're actually a righteous man, but the God you worship, he's, he's actually a jerk. He's malevolent, vindictive. You, you shouldn't worship. He's actually just turned mean. And these are the two explanations that Job's friends give him. And the whole time, Job and his friends, they're trying to explain why Job is going through this particular suffering. Here's what happens for 37 chapters. God just listens. Doesn't say anything. 37 chapters of a 42-chapter book, and you don't hear a word from God until chapter 38. And the first thing God does is not explain Job's suffering. He actually asks 66 questions and takes Job on sort of this, you know, virtual cosmic tour, sort of like the, you know, the original Jeff Bezos, if you will. I did not just compare Yahweh to Jeff Bezos. <laughs> and these are the questions. God says to Job, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest, darkest? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. 
Strange language, bit of poetry, what's going on? God is telling Job to remember his finitude. God is telling Job to remember that he's human. God is telling Job that God is God and Job is not. See, at no point in the 66 questions that God asks, and I've just used a few of them, does God give an explanation? He just addresses Job's faulty thinking. And what's the faulty thinking? The faulty thinking comes from this question. God to Job, do you have comprehensive knowledge of the entire universe? See, what would it take to be able to satisfactorily explain the why me in the face of suffering? What would it take? Well, I actually think it would take being God. It would take a God's eye view of the universe. And that's exactly what humans lack. It's not to me, it's not to say that we shouldn't ask the question. It's just to say that if we find ourselves asking it, remember your finitude. Why? Because there might be reasons for the things that we're going through that we ourselves can't comprehend. To paraphrase Tim Keller, he put it like this, if God is big enough to be worshipped, then he's big enough to have reasons to allow suffering that we ourselves can't comprehend. Now that's kind of like smelling salt, it kind of wakes you up. But there's freedom there, why? Because it stops you, what's the word? Um, Centering your life around, obsessing. It stops you obsessing over trying to find an explanation and it frees you to lean into the bigness of God while you weep. That's what that does. It doesn't say don't ask the question, but it does say don't center your life around it. Why? Because you're finite. You do not have a God's eye view of the universe, and that should free you amidst the pain you're going through. But it's a hard word. I'll take that point. Second, we need to pray our tears. Pray your tears. In the story, Job and his friends, they're basically complaining the whole time. If you read the book, you'll experience that. It's actually a bit of a slog. Job curses the day he was born, and his friends curse the day that Job was born. Job's friends, they uh, question the wisdom of God, and, and Job questions the wisdom of God. Job cries out and complains bitterly, and so too do his friends. But if you wanted a model of the type of Christian faith you'd expect to see, this wouldn't be it. Job's not like this happy-go-lucky kind of, you know, everything's sweet, you know me and Jesus, we're like this. He's not like that. They're raw, they're untamed, they're unhindered, they're just honest. But the fascinating thing about all of this encounter is that God condemns Job's friends, but he never condemns Job. Why? At the very end, Job is actually called innocent by God which makes no sense because he's got the same track record as his friends. But what's the difference? Where Job's friends complain about God to Job, Job complains about God to God. When Job's friends get bitter about Job's situation to Job, Job gets bitter about his situation to God. In other words, same practice, but the person who heard their complaint, for Job's friends, it was a human. For Job, it was God. In other words, Job never stopped praying his tears. He never stopped taking the worst parts of him to God. He never stopped praying. Now, why is this significant? 
is significant because it actually shows us that if we're followers of Jesus, we believe the scriptures from which this story comes, that we can be raw and we can be untamed and we can be unhindered. And there's actually a model for it in the scriptures. We can take our best selves and our worst selves to God. A lot of people think that when suffering comes and you want to be a really good Christian, you just need to pretend like it doesn't suck. Like the most faithful expression of being a Christian in the face of suffering is to be someone who's got a smile and through gritted teeth say like, God's good all the time, amen. But that's just not what we experience in Job. You see this man who brings all of himself, his worst parts, all to God. Job shows us that it is actually legitimate to say, life sucks right now, and I don't know why this is happening, but what's the key? The key is that you say that to God. There's a whole category for this in the Bible. It's called lament. Lament is taking the deepest, darkest, most pain-filled parts of ourselves to God in prayer. The psalmist does it all the time. There's a whole book called the Book of Lamentations, probably written by a guy named Jeremiah. It's this category, it's this tradition of prayer, which actually gives us a way by which we can take ourselves to God. And so here's what I want to encourage you. Pray your tears. You can yell at God in the car on your way home tonight. You can cry to God on your pillow. God's big enough for that. And let me articulate it negatively. Don't play pretend in your suffering. Don't settle for pretend. Bring your whole self. Pray your tears. And finally, I just want to encourage you, share your burdens. Again, in the story, Job's friends, they weren't all bad. You know, they come along, they're trying to, you know, someone's sitting there suffering and someone comes in with, like, explanations. They didn't just do that. They, when they first came along, they actually did something quite profound. And in chapter 2, we get a window into it. I just want to read from verse 11. It says this, When Job's three friends, I won't try and pronounce their names, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. I'll finish that in a second. Just imagine what it takes to be a friend to someone and to like have that be your first reaction when you see them from a distance and you start weeping for them. What kind of human do you have to be? I imagine a pretty decent one. And then it says, Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. I just want to say, what a great model. What a great model. See, this is where the Christian story becomes its most practical. The thing we most need in our pain, it's not nice platitudes, although they're helpful, but it's not that. It's real people. The thing we most need in our pain is not nice platitudes, but real people. You talk to anyone who's got a psychology background, a counselling background, one of the first questions that you get asked if you sit through a counselling session is, what's your support network? And the Bible actually gives us a really beautiful resource by which to say the church should have the best kind. You don't need nice platitudes, but real people. God's great answer to the problem of suffering, it's not just helpful answers to intellectual questions. It's the presence of people that he's set aside to be his family. It's the family of God. We talked about it last week. It's the family of God. This local setting in which your worst days can be the most supported days, or your most extreme suffering can be the most tempered thing. Why? Because you've got a network of people, a community of people, a family of people 
who have a vested interest not just in seeing you have right answers to this, but getting through this. Not letting this ruin you, but refine you. Not letting this make you bitter, but make you better. Change your character, reshape it into the image of Jesus. That's what the church is. And Job's friends model it by virtue of them being a community to Job and his suffering. And to go back to the quote at the start, Paul commands it. The Apostle Paul, from whom we have most of the New Testament, he said this in Romans 12. We read this last week, verse 15. He said, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. The message translation says it this way. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy and share tears when they're down. So here's the point. Suffering is going to come in this life. If you haven't heard that, I'm sorry. (laughs) But reality check, it's coming. It's real. It's all this world knows. It's coming. And when it does, you might not be able to perfectly explain it. You might not even be able to perfectly go through it. But you can be sure as heck that you don't do it alone. This is the mandate we get from the Christian story. Not in the church. The church is the family of God. And family is the safe space in which you can be honest about what you're going through. So here's the point. Share your burdens. Share your burdens. One, how do you navigate suffering? You need to remember your finitude. We're human. We're dust. We're not God. We don't have a God's eye perspective. So just temper that sense in you that needs to explain and explain and explain. There are explanations, but they're general. They're not necessarily specific. So be free in your finitude. Two, you need to pray your tears. Engage this tradition of lament. It's beautiful, but it's hard and it's raw. And you need to share your burdens. Share your burdens horizontally. That's what the church is for. I didn't have this in my notes, but one scripture that came to my mind just as I was in worship is 1 Peter 5, 7. And it's talking about Jesus and who he is to us. And as followers of Jesus, this is true. Peter says to the church, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. I've talked very horizontally about how you might navigate suffering. But can I tell you this? It's going to mean nothing unless you know the vertical relationship that's available to you in Jesus. And to the degree that you know he cares for you, that's the degree to which you'll cast your cares on him. And so how do we know that God cares for us? Well, Paul would say it earlier in his letter to the Romans, he'd say, well, we know that God has demonstrated his love for us because while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The Christian story says we were made good in relationship with the Father, but we were cast east of Eden outside the garden because of our sins separated from the one who made us for him. But because of Jesus and what he's done for us and what he's now doing in us, we can be reconciled to God. Have that vertical relationship with the Father restored. And so I actually just want to invite anyone in the room. If you've never started that relationship with God before, or you've walked away, maybe suffering was the thing. I just want to invite you in the quiet of your own heart now. Just say, hi, God. I'm here. I'm sorry I walked away. And I actually just want to create just a minute of silence while the band plays behind me, just instrumentally, just for you to do that. A little nice framework is, sorry, God. Thank you for what you've done. Please come again into my life and lead me. So if that's you, just do that in the quiet of your own heart right now.
When suffering comes, you don't need to go it alone. One of the promises of Jesus is that he'd never leave nor forsake us. And so if you've prayed that prayer in your own heart, in your own mind right now, I just want to encourage you to share that with someone on our host team, myself, or the prayer team at the end of the service. But maybe you're a Christian in the room and life's just really hard and you're facing some terrible things and you actually have been asking this question, why me? Why now? Why this? And I just want to say, as best as I can from behind a pulpit, as impersonal as that feels, I just want to say that sucks. And there are no pat answers. But there's a family here. And so stay. Share. Get vulnerable with one or two people. Maybe they're in your community group. Maybe they're just a little triplet that you pray with. Maybe they're a housemate. But share. Don't go it alone. And invite God into that space. I'm going to pray in a moment. Before I do, I just want to invite the parents of Kids at Kids Life. Um, we're, we're going to open up communion, uh, led by one of our council leaders, um, Bruce, in a moment. And if you've got kids in Kids Life, I want to invite you to go grab them and bring them back into um, this building and we'll gather around the body and the blood of Jesus together. And while that's happening, let me just pray. So, Father, thank you so much that we have a family. God, I just want to pray for those in the room right now that are, su- that are suffering, that are struggling. And Lord, we're about to sing a song right now which declares that you are good and that you'll never let us down. Lord, for some of us, that's going to be an anthem where we're just declaring out of the depths of our lived experience that you are good and we want to praise you for it. But for others, it's going to be a statement of faith that while the storm's raging, while the clouds are covering the sun, that life seems hard, that if we cry out that you are good and you're never going to let us down, it's, it's a cry that that would be true, but we don't experience. And so I, I pray, Lord, just free us right now. Free us to cry from the depths of who we are, saying that you are good. And Lord, we thank you that it is true in the ultimate sense that you will never let us down, that that which is most dear in life, your presence and future with you and a family we call church that those things are always there doesn't mean we'll always have health wealth and happiness it just means God that we know you and are known by you and are loved by your people and love your people and so Father I pray help us sing now and so I just want to invite you to stand and Lord I want to ask that you by your spirit would just come Flood this place. Make us unhindered before you right now, Father. In Jesus' name.